Hello and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name's David Lee and in this series we take an in-depth look at some common and not so common questions and scenarios that Brodies lawyers have faced over the years. In each episode we talk to Brodies experts to hear their insights and experiences and how they find the right approach when asked that deceptively simple question, what do I do if? Our current focus is on health and safety and land and rural business. And I'm joined today by legal director Scott Logan and partner Lucy Barnes to address an increasingly common question in rural Scotland. What do I do if I'm asked to put a telecoms mast on my land? So, Lucy, I'll come to you first. Why might a landowner be asked to do this? Why might he be asked or she asked to put a telecoms mast on their land? Uh, the driver will generally be uh, a, a sort of a wireless telecommunications operator. So think sort of mobile phone technology uh, is either tasked or has got a commercial commercial reason um, for sort of wanting to uh, to sort of improve the connectivity in that particular part of the world. And is it increasingly common, Lucy? Uh, I think uh, we would say that it's more and more common. Um, some of the, the reasons behind that is obviously increased consumer demand, uh, also government policy sort of rolling out, you know, uh, better technologies. So you think how many Gs we've had, uh, I think we're on to 5G now. So, you know, th- there's many there's many reasons for that, which is making it more and more common. But I think th- the fundamental change has been the introduction of the electronic communications code. Um, the 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 new electronic communications code and we had that at sort of the end of 2017 so we're very much seeing uh, the the mechanics of that coming through Um, and that essentially has given far greater powers to the operators um, to sort of roll out this this infrastructure. And Scott how is Scotland doing in terms of its kind of mobile connectivity at the moment you know do we still have a lot of areas that aren't well connected uh, and is that is that what's driving uh, this need for more telecoms masts hey Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, There are large areas of Scotland that do not have good connectivity at the moment. So there are various initiatives to to try and address that at the moment and and deal with the the so-called not spots where there's currently no uh, coverage from any operator at the moment. Uh, So, for example, we've got the shared rural network, which is picking up pace and we'll see a £1 billion investment in new mass and upgrades uh, to eliminate these these not spots. Uh, That's an initiative being delivered by the four main UK mobile network operators, Vodafone, O2, 3 and E, with support from the government. And that aims to provide 4G coverage to 95% of the UK by the end of 2025. So obviously that will see a greatly enhanced uh, mass network to deliver that. Uh, The rollout of 5G networks will also see uh, a significant increase in the number of masts and towers uh, to begin with, a number of the existing masts may not be suitable for 5G deployment. And as the area covered by 5G signal is much smaller than the area covered by 4G, this means considerably more mass will be needed to cover the same area. Uh, in urban areas, this will be less noticeable as 5G infrastructure can be a, a hosted or accommodated on street furniture and the like. But in rural areas, this will inevitably mean lots more uh, new mass. 
And when you talk about the not spot, Scott, are you talking about the obvious areas? Are we talking about Highlands and Islands, Argyll and Bew, you know, Dumfries and Galloway borders, etc.? Is it the areas you would typically think the ones that are much more rural and and just don't have very very much kind of housing or business or whatever in them? That, that that's exactly the case. It's uh, very much the case that it's not been economically viable for the operators to get into these areas. Obviously, they, they all need power connections. They all need uh, fibre connections as well to provide these these networks. So that all costs a lot of money in providing these to remote rural locations. And now with uh, industry and government uh, funding. Uh, the initiative to to reach these hard to reach areas uh, that should see an improvement, uh, and Scotland will certainly benefit from that, given that the you know there is poor connectivity in many of these areas in, in Scotland. And if somebody wants to put up a mast on your land, then uh, how does that request come in, and who makes it to a landowner? Uh, well, typically, uh, a specialist site acquisition agent acting on behalf of one of the, the main mobile operators or infrastructures uh, providers would make that request. Uh, at the outset, that, that might just be an approach uh, to take access to the land to see if the land is suitable for, for hosting a telecoms mast. Uh, and then going forward, if it is a, a good location or, or possibly a good location, uh, an owner can typically expect to receive a heads of terms proposal setting out what the, the operator is proposing to install there uh, and the terms that are, are being offered for that. And what are landowners' options uh, if that request comes in? You know, what what can they say? Uh, well, as, as Lucy mentioned, the, the operators have statutory powers under the, the Electronic Communications Code, uh, greatly enhanced power since uh, the new code came in. However, the, the basic premise of the code is still that operators require the agreement of the owner to install and operate their equipment on land, but ultimately they do have recourse to the Lands Tribunal to impose terms if agreement cannot be reached. So whilst uh, the operators obviously have these wide-ranging powers, it, it does not give them a carte blanche to do anything that they want to do. And so there's no reason for an owner to accept the the first offer that comes forward from a, an operator. It's very much that uh, you might improve your position through negotiation. Uh, and I would certainly always advise a, a landowner to carefully consider any approach uh, from an operator. But uh, if it's something that the owner is interested in, in taking forward, uh, absolutely negotiate the terms and you'll get a better deal that way. And and so, Lucy, you know, you're a landowner or a farmer, you get this request coming in. What's your advice to them as a, as a kind of first step? Um, I think the key is dialogue. You know, Scott and I have worked on on these for uh, you know for a period now, and I think what we've seen is just the surprise. There's an element of surprise sometimes when an operator, you know, will sort of approach a landowner, and that can sometimes create a bit of a sort of partisan position, and and that's really unfortunate. So what I would say is just dialogue. You know. Even if you're, you are surprised, even if it's perhaps something that you think, no, that's not something I want. Um, do not ignore the correspondence when it comes in. I think perhaps also a practical step can be to look at the local planning portal to see if perhaps the operator is, uh, needs planning permission and perhaps they've made some moves, done some steps to, to, to make that application, you know, sort of, 
get yourself um, knowledgeable about what is happening. Don't ignore it um, because, as Scott said, you know, the operators do have powers that they can utilise if they need to. And really, really open up those conversations early. You know, nobody wants to end up in a tribunal on these things, especially if, you know, if, if an agreement can be reached and, you know, a negotiated compromise can can be sorted out. And I think I probably know the answer to this question, Lucy, but would you advise landowners to get legal advice at an early stage as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seeking expert professional advice is important. Um, obviously, from a, a drafting uh, and, and negotiating a telecoms agreement, uh, you know, you need expert legal advice there. You also will need sort of uh, telecommunications agent advice uh, and valuation advice as well. Okay, so so Scott, you've already touched on this, that not everybody will be delighted when this comes in. Some people might bury their heads in the sand. Lucy said, don't do that, obviously. So if the landowner's not very happy and they do enter into a dialogue, but that dialogue's not getting very far, what are the exact powers that the operators have to force them to put up a mast? And do they have to reach a certain bar in terms of, you know, that we are doing this because... Hey, well, yeah, so uh, as we've covered already, the the code that came in in 2017 greatly enhanced those rights and, and does give the operators power to acquire rights to install their, their mass or other telecoms equipment if agreement cannot be reached. There is a procedure there that requires notification to be given, but at the end of that period, if um, an agreement is, is not reached, the, the operator can then apply to the tribunal to, to seek imposed rights. Uh, there is a test to be met, obviously. Uh, and firstly, it falls into two, two different parts of the test. Firstly, the prejudice caused to the owner or occupier can be adequately compensated by money. And then secondly, the public benefit in having access to communications networks outweighs that uh, prejudice. So in most cases, the access test will likely be met and so the, the operator will be able to, to get their mast. But obviously, there, there will be exceptions. Uh, for example, in the University of Arts London case, the university was able to resist the imposition of, of code rights there due to the significant reputational and litigation that risks that would have arisen from being unable to perform its obligations under a development agreement. Uh, looking at site specifics, there may also be site specific reasons why uh, undue prejudice would be caused or unquantifiable prejudice would be caused. And in those circumstances, an owner might be able to resist uh, the imposition of, of a mass if there are particular reasons against that. There's also protection for uh, owners that are intending to develop their land. So the tribunal cannot impose uh, these rights in favour of the operator if it's satisfied that the owner intends to redevelop the the land and could not reasonably do so obviously if the if the rights for the mast were granted uh, that very much is the, the case that it would fall on the owner to satisfy the the tribunal that it's a genuine and settled intention to redevelop uh, but if if that could be established then that that would be a good ground to to defend any application by the the operator okay and Let's assume it's going ahead, whether it's willingly or unwillingly. You know, what can a landowner expect uh, to be paid for allowing a mass to be sited on their land? And how's that worked out, Scott? Uh, well, again, back to the, the new code that was introduced in 2017, that, that brought in a new uh, basis of valuation. Uh, 
so the rent is still uh, calculated on, on a market value basis, but it is subject to a number of assumptions. And the key one here is the no network assumption, which disregards the telecoms use. Uh, so that has led to a significant reduction in the rents being paid for, for mass sites. So before uh, the new code, we're typically looking at around the five to six thousand pounds per annum for uh, a greenfield site. Uh, now we're sort of in the region of 750 to a thousand pounds per annum. Uh, we've had a few cases coming through the tribunals, uh, both uh, north and south of the border. Uh, so the Scottish case uh, that determined a rent of £1,500 for the first year where uh, during installation there's obviously a greater impact on the owner and then £600 per annum after that. And a subsequent English uh, case uh, determined the rent to be £750 per annum or rather it would have been £750 per annum, but for the proximity of residential properties, which upped it uh, in that particular case. Okay. And Lucy, that doesn't sound like a huge amount of money, particularly if you've had to pay professional fees to all the different, uh, you know, individuals you've mentioned. Uh, Will the landowner's professional fees be covered at all? Yeah, I think the um, the wording is all reasonable, reasonably incurred costs should be covered and will be covered by the operator. Um, that you know the the sort of the view there being that the landowner should not be left out of pocket. Um, that's the sort of language that we've seen in one particular English case that dealt with the this this issue of incurring costs. Um, it, it's interesting because we sort of see in these situations, you know, when operators approach a landowner uh, and they say, you know, we'd like to do this and we will pay you the sum of X in respect of, you know, your sort of your, your legal costs and, and valuation costs and the like. Um, and that sum is, you know, £1,500, for example. But that can vary quickly if it gets into quite, a, a, you know, a negotiated document um, that goes back and forth on a number of turns, you know, £1,500 isn't going to cover it. Uh, and as I say, so we, we did have this recent English case where the judge um, in the upper tribunal said, no, it is all reasonable, all reasonably incurred costs. You know, it's not a fixed sum. Uh, and so long as the landowner can justify um, the costs that have been incurred, then Arguably, they, you know, they they will be paid by the operator. Um, I think that the challenge very much comes around is, you know, what is reasonably incurred. Um, in that particular case, there was very much a question mark about having people on site, the landowner having people on site that were instructed by them to sort of watch and oversee. Um, and so you very much have to, you know, the land from the landowner's perspective, they very much have to be ensuring that what is being incurred will be viewed as being reasonable. Okay, and do we often get not quite into a fist fight, but do we get into pretty difficult territory sometimes when you know landowners are unhappy in the first place? There's arguments about money. Have you seen quite you know bitter disputes over telecoms mass at all? Yeah, I think it's that shock factor. I think it's because you know the operators have these powers now, and you know there is it is incumbent on them to sort of roll out this infrastructure. That is what government is telling them they have to do, and they are responsible 
for financing that. You know, they are commercial businesses to, do, you know, they're doing their thing in, in the industry, but it, it is incumbent on them to, you know, to sort of make rural areas, give them, you know, sort of greater access to healthcare, you know, through the 5G, um, through the 5G networks, greater access to education. You know, this is a societal issue and, you know, they are, they are sort of responsible for rolling out the infrastructure. They don't make the same money um from uh from obviously us making telephone calls and text messages because we don't work in that way anymore consumer behavior has changed so they've had to monetize um you know the sort of the data aspect of it and that's why you know we pay our monthly subscriptions and you get your sort of your calls and your texts all rolled in you know for free because they're not making any money from the apps so they that's how they have now had to monetize it but they are ultimately responsible for rolling out all this very expensive infrastructure um so it is as I say, it is sort of incumbent on us um, to sort of not try and um, when those negotiations are happening, you know, there's a duty on the operator to sort of uh, act reasonably. You know, everybody needs to be sort of coming together to make sure that telecoms agreement you know, is, uh, is sort of as tight as it needs to be and sort of uh, brings that balance of rights and responsibilities for both parties. And I think it's as landowners just (laughs) sound like a bit of a a peacemaker I should be a mediator in another life um but just try and you know sort of step back from that shock factor um and really try not to let that uh you know become an entrenched position because you know it can be a long process to negotiate these things Okay. And and Scott, you touched on this earlier on about landowners not jumping in and not necessarily accepting those 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 standard terms. But as Lucy said, there's that balance to draw between understanding their own rights but their responsibilities to the wider community and society. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. So uh, typically the, the operators will, will put forward their, their standard terms uh, and uh, as you would expect, the, the standard terms are weighted in favour of the, the operators. It gives them powers that they, they need to install and operate their equipment. Uh, and often, unfortunately, the, the standard terms are, are lacking in a number of areas from a, from a landowner's perspective. So uh, the key is very much negotiate those terms if, uh, you know, from a landowner's perspective, you, you want to ensure that when access has been taken to your land, there, there's appropriate provisions in there about, you know, who, who they should contact, how much notice has to be given, Obviously, if, uh, if vehicles are going to be taken onto the land, you, you want to have advance notice of that and really understand what, what's going on in your, your land. Uh, one, one of the alternatives to the, the kind of st- the operator standard terms is, uh, the infralink templates, which is a, a suite of documents that have been made available fairly recently. And that strikes a, a much better balance, uh, between the, the, opposing interest there and a, a good starting point for negotiations and actually the take up from from both both sides has been encouraging there so the operators are uh, in my experience uh, willing to to sign up to that as a kind of starting point for negotiations but again just whatever form of document is used it's important to to negotiate the terms and ensure that the terms are fair to both parties so that means giving the operator sufficient flexibility to, to access and operate their equipment, but again with appropriate uh, checks and balances in place to to protect the landowner. And as you talked about earlier on, Scott, you know we're 
improving the quality of telecommunications all the time, you know, from 3G to 4G to 5G and so on. Uh, masks come to the end of their natural life as well. What what happens then? What what about when the mast agreement comes to an end? Uh, what should the landowner be doing then? Can they ask for the equipment to be removed? Hey, well, it is very important that landowners are aware from the outset of the statutory protection afforded to, to telecoms mass, which makes it very difficult uh, to get the mass removed when the agreement comes to an end or indeed at any point after that. So regardless of the, the agreement reaching its expiry date, the, the telecoms code rights continue on a statutory footing until terminated in accordance with the, the telecoms code. And the circumstances in which mast agreements can be terminated are, are very limited, so they can only be brought to an end at the end of the uh, contractual term or after that. Uh, a minimum of 18 months notice is required, and then the termination grounds are very limited as well. So it's only where uh, the operator or tenant under the agreement has been in substantial breach or persistent delays in making payments where... Uh, they're no longer entitled to code rights because those access tests we discussed earlier are no longer met. And finally, again, there's a, a kind of redevelopment uh, termination ground. So if the uh, landowner requires the land back for redevelopment, then that would uh, constitute a termination ground. Uh, it is possible when negotiating agreements to include a lift and shift provision. So that's just a, a contractual uh, provision that allows you to say to the operator, actually, I, I need you to relocate the, the mass to somewhere else in my property if it can be reasonably accommodated elsewhere to allow a, an alternative use of, of the land to be made. Uh, and equally, I, th I think if uh, typically leases will be granted for a minimum of uh, 10 years, quite often longer. So if there's any development potential or aspiration within that period, then the landowner should, should be asking for a, a break option uh, on 18 months notice if he requires the land back for redevelopment purposes. Okay, and finally, Lucy, you know, it's a complex area. There's a lot of legislation covering it. As you say, there's that shock factor of, you know, the, the telecoms company knocking on the door or sending the email, whatever, saying that this is going to happen. What's your advice as a lawyer uh, to clients you represent in this area? You've touched a little bit already. Is it about keeping a cool head and understanding that balance of rights and responsibilities? Yeah, I think, you know, that's absolutely it. You know, in this scenario, nine times out of 10, it ends up in a sort of, uh, you know, in, in a telecommunications agreement being, you know, coming into existence. Um, but if that is not what you want, then you need to have that full suite of options been laid out to you um, and to see if if that can be achieved. Um you know, we as I sort of touched on before, you know, we have those duties and responsibilities, and this is this is a, an issue right across the UK. Um, and there's lots of people who are in this in this moment um, that is, you know, hugely more common than it was a couple of years ago. And I think if, as I say, if you are in a situation where that is happening to you, and you need you need to know what your options are. If it's going to be a telecommunications agreement at the end of that, then so be it. But if if it's not something that you want, and there is, a, you know, there is a, a, the sort of um, the test to be met, then you need to know what your options are available to you. 
Thanks very much to Lucy Barnes and Scott Logan for those great insights today. It's part of the What Do I Do If series brought to you by Podcast by Brodies, where some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about issues and developments in the legal sector and their impact on the wider society and economy. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to Podcast by Brodies, available on all your main podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com.